Good morning. Get your Bibles out. Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you. It's that red book, page 551. Luke chapter 12 will be at the latter part of it today. As you're turning, uh, a few few uh, items. Uh, Dan mentioned the this rather sad one in his prayer. Uh, Bill Fraker is back in the hospital this morning. That's his fourth hospitalization in a month. I don't know about you, but uh, that's that's pretty discouraging and debilitating for him. He's in tremendous pain. Debbie is uh, very upset and with him now. And uh, this is post-gallbladder uh, removal surgery and a number of other things that he's been experiencing. But folks, we need to pray for Bill Fraker. Um, he is really uh, going through a tough time. But we have good news too. And that is that Ray Varela is here. Ray, wave your hand in the back. Ray, it's good to see you back in church. All right. Ray has gone through gallbladder removal surgery. We keep losing gallbladders at Coast Bible Church. Ray, it is really good to see you. I know you are not out of the the woods yet. I know you're still in some pain. So uh, we will uh, tread carefully around you. Uh, But uh, we're glad you're here and glad you're on the mend. And of course, Marianne still hospitalized. Prayers for her, of course. Um, and then we've ha- had many other friends of Coast, Candy Outermat, Fred Koblenz, and others. That uh, it's just been a. T- I was telling the kids at Awana, it has not been a happy New Year. It's been a sad New Year for many, many families, and it's been a tough New Year. And so, folks, uh, let's go to the Lord now in prayer and just beseeching God again to bring healing and peace. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. Father, Bill Fraker needs you right now. I cannot imagine, God, four times to the ER because of the pain, debilitating pain in his body. Lord, our hearts go out to him and to Debbie. We are asking you, God, for relief. Would you bring healing, God, to his body? Would you rid him of this debilitating pain God, we want to see him on the mend. We thank you, God, that that's happening in Ray, that Mary Ann's making some recovery from surgery now, though, though the future is still a little unknown as to what to do about the cancer. And Father, there are others, Lord, that uh, we've been praying for, Candy, Fred, and many others. God, you know them. You know who needs healing and, and needs your, your hand, God. We pray that you'd be the physician, the great physician for them. Let us as a church, God, rally around them. We know, God, I've seen what happens when those who are hurting and hospitalized receive word of prayer, or when they receive a note, or an email, or a picture drawn by a child, that it just enlivens them, God. It encourages them. It reminds them, Lord, that their brothers and sisters in Christ are right there with them. So, Lord, let us be a church that is right there with those in need. Now, God, would you fill us up by your spirit and through your word. We need encouragement. So, God, give us some from your word today. Let us uh, understand and know your truth, even when it's hard. And let us appropriate that truth into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, I ran a stop sign a number of months ago. 
I will confess, I sometimes have California stops at stop signs, and there I was in Ladera, my hometown, and I was not even a, a quarter mile from my house, and I'm driving up to the stop sign. It's, uh, it's like a Saturday morning. There's no one around on either side. This was a number of months ago, and uh, I come up to the stop sign and just kind of creep up, you know, just kind of look real quick and, 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 and coast through, probably at about one to two miles an hour, very, very light. I almost stopped. Well, in the town of Ladera, there was a highway patrolman who happened to be a few yards away as I was doing this. Why the highway patrol are in Ladera, I will never know. But he happened to be looking up when I uh, coasted through that stop sign at two miles per hour. And sure enough, as I got about halfway through the intersection, I looked to the right and I thought, I know who that is. And uh, the lights went on and I, my head went down and I had to pull over and I got a ticket for a California stop. Ah, come on, confession time. How many of you have received a ticket for a California stop? Raise your hand. I want some camaraderie here. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dave. I got a few. Keon, thank you. All right, Margaret. Thank you. I have a little bit of, uh, I feel a little bit better about myself. I'm not such a great sinner. Well, anyway, I'm relaying this story a week or two later to a Christian friend of mine, not in this church, don't you worry, but I'm relaying this story to a Christian friend of mine. The first words out of his mouth was, are you going to fight it? I I looked at him, I was like, what? He said, are you going to fight it? Fight, Fight the ticket? He says, yeah. I said, what are you talking about? And he says, you can fight this. You can fight it. I said, yeah, but I did it. He says, it doesn't matter. (laughs) You can fight this ticket. I said, but I did it. He says, I don't care. I says, you want me to fight against something I know I did? He says, yeah. You want me to fight against the guilt that I know that I have? Yeah. Today in the Gospel of Luke... Jesus has a message for you and I. And it is, if you know you're guilty, don't even think about going before the judge and fighting it on the last day. Don't even think about it. If you know you're guilty, settle it now. Settle it now. In this life. Because if you know you're guilty and you go before the judge on the last day, it's not going to go well with you. It's not going to go well with you. Would you stand with me as we read from the latter part of Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. Luke 12, verses 49 to the end of the chapter. Jesus says this. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. 
three against two, two against three, father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 54. Then Jesus also said to the multitudes, to the crowd, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, Immediately you look and you say, oh, a shower's coming. And so it is, you're right. And when you see the south wind blow, you look and you say, there will be a hot weather today. And there is, you're right. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you, ju- do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into the prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. You may be seated. Verse 49 again. I came to send fire on the earth. Literally, I came to cast fire, balo in Greek, cast fire on the earth. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. That's not the Jesus I remember in Sunday school. Is that the Jesus you remember in Sunday school? The Jesus who casts fire on the earth? What fire? Lord, what fire are you talking about? Well, a casual look really at the Gospel of Luke will reveal that answer quite, quite quickly. If you jump back to chapter 3, I've listed it there on the bottom of your outline if you're taking some notes. A casual look at how fire is used in the Gospel of Luke gives us an indication of what Jesus is talking about. In Luke chapter 3 verse 9, this is John the Baptist speaking and he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later on, John speaks of Jesus and he says his, Messiah's winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then if we were to go a little bit past chapter 12, jump ahead in Luke, we'd come to Luke 17 where it says, likewise, this is Jesus speaking, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The fire is the fire of judgment. Jesus is saying very clearly in Luke 12, 49, that he has come to earth to cast fiery judgment. Fire that purifies and cleanses. Fire that chastises and harms. Fire that causes physical death. Even fire that causes eternal death. Not only does Jesus speak of the reason for his coming, which is to carry out 
fiery judgment upon the earth, but he even goes a step further. If you thought that that was hard enough to hear from the Jesus that you remember in Sunday school, if you thought it was hard to hear that Jesus has come in fiery judgment upon the earth, take a look at the last clause of the verse. Look at the last part of verse 49. It says, and how I wish it were already kindled. He goes a step further. He says, and I'm eager to do it. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. It's Jesus' wish to cast fire on the earth. It's his hope that that fire would be lit now and begin to heat up. I don't know about you, but I think this is very difficult to grasp when I think of, of Jesus. I think it's difficult for many, I think for most of us here, listening to these words, it's difficult for us to grasp these words coming from the Son of God. We wonder, why why is he so eager? Why is Jesus so quick to desire justice? But then, consider how we operate. Think for a moment how you operate in life. When you are wronged, deeply wronged, when someone hurts you or harms you or or harms someone that you love, how eager are you to desire justice? I think of the recent tragedy in France. Oh my goodness. What happened in Paris just recently where uh, some Muslim terrorists stormed a satirical, a, a, a joke, a, a funny French newspaper. And these terrorists, they stormed the satirical French publication and they shot the place up and they murdered a dozen people, cartoonists, not even reporters. They murdered cartoonists because... They made fun of the prophet. A cartoon? You know, the world was eager this past week to see those terrorists brought to justice, weren't we? The whole world was. If you were turning on the news, if you were reading any, any publication, you saw tons and tons of demands from the world, the world leaders, the people of the world, certainly the people of France, demands for these terrorists to be brought to justice. There was a manhunt for them. Special forces were brought in. It was our natural reaction as a global population to want retribution for what happened. There was something inborn in all of us that there was this global reaction that says we want justice. We want revenge. That wasn't right. What they did was wrong. We want to get them. We want to avenge our fallen cartoonists. Folks, uh, we are like the Lord in this way. We have a natural bent 
toward justice. And of course we're like the Lord. He made us. He created us. He created us with these inborn traits. These natural things that despite even though a world that often doesn't, de- uh, that often denies him, but yet in that, in this world that we live in, there was such a universal call for justice to be done. That's born from our creator. We are like the Lord. We have a natural bent and eagerness toward justice. And the Lord too is zealous for justice to take place in the world. If our view of God, if our view of God doesn't have room for a God who is eager for judgment and justice, then we're not fully grasping the God of the Bible. And let us not forget who it is in Luke 12 who is eager to carry out judgment. It's not the Father making this statement. It's not God the Father. It's the Son. Jesus is eager to judge. If our theology only contains a passive and a peaceful Jesus, the one who loves, the one who shows grace, the one who shows mercy, all of which he does, but if that's all that our theology of Jesus has, a Jesus who loves, shows grace, shows mercy, and we don't have a view a theology that says, and he eagerly wants judgment. If we don't have that in our understanding of Jesus, then we're not fully grasping the Jesus of the Bible. We often suppose that God the Father is the tough one, the person of the Trinity who is the harsh judge, the executor of justice, but in truth, the Father has tasked the Son. Let me say that again. The Father has tasked the Son with the responsibility of judgment. On the back of your outline, we've listed some other scriptures there, uh, noteworthy ones. Take a look at who is judge. Who is listed as judge? 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of the Father? No, of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul, again, this time speaking to the Athenian people in Acts 17, he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by whom? By the man whom he has ordained. Who is that man? He has given assurance of this to all by raising that man from the dead. That man is Jesus. In John 5.22, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but He has committed all judgment to the Son. We have a predisposition that it's God the Father who's the, who's the harsh and tough one, the judge at the end of days. It's Christ. It's the Lamb of God. It's the loving and gracious and merciful one. He's also eager to judge. Just like you and I are eager to judge and to see justice in the world. The whole world will stand before Jesus on the last day, including you and I. Jesus, the merciful Lamb of God, is the judge. He is also the person who despite the fact that we view him as a uniter, as the head of the church, the one who unites the body of Christ, despite the fact that he is a uniter, he says himself he's also a divider. Take a look at verse 51. 
to the uh, to 53. He says, "But do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three, father divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law." I know it's hard to believe, folks. But the Bible predicts that daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws will not always get along. (laughs) Notice, notice, it does not say that son-in-laws and mother-in-laws will not get along. (laughs) I should know, for my mother-in-law absolutely adores me, don't you, Cheryl? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Uh, In all seriousness now, in all seriousness, Jesus is making a point. That he is not merely, he is not merely the peaceful son of God. Yes, he's brought peace. He is the prince of peace. Jesus is not saying he hasn't come and, and brought peace to earth. He has. He's making a hyperbole. He's making an exaggerated statement that it's not, peace is not all that he's come for. Peace is not all that he has brought with him in his incarnation, in his coming to earth. Jesus is not merely a uniter, he is a divider. His teaching divides people. His gospel divides people. And of course it would. For Jesus says that he is the only way to be eternally saved. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Jesus is the great divider. He's the dividing line. What we think about him will necessarily divide us. In society, it will divide us. What we think about him will necessarily divide us in our own family, Jesus says. A disciple of Christ must be willing to accept this truth. That if you're committed to God and his word, you will necessarily find yourself at odds with some in your biological family. And while some Christians may be tempted, many Christians are, they're tempted to alter their beliefs a bit, right? Many Christians are tempted to alter their beliefs or or slightly change their behavior so that they can fit in with their family. You know, family first, family first. We we have this in our minds that, that, that our biological family comes first. Whatever it takes to keep peace in the family, alter our beliefs, alter our actions, do whatever it takes, just keep peace in the family. That's some of our mindset. Many Christians are tempted. Change their beliefs or their behavior so that they can fit in to their biological family. But Jesus' words are haunting. He says, I've come to divide Divide families. I don't desire to, but it's the nature of this fallen world. Some will believe and follow me. Some will not. My presence will divide families. I ask you, are you more committed to your biological family than you are to the Lord? Are you more committed to fitting in, to changing your behavior and your beliefs or or mitigating those beliefs or mitigating that behavior? just to fit in, just to keep the peace in your biological family? Or are you willing to let your beliefs and your Christian moral conduct potentially cause you to be ostracized, to be 
put out, to be estranged from your family. I would say that contrary to popular belief, family does not come first. Family does not come first, friends. The Lord comes first. Family is important for all of us. The Lord comes first. Family is a priority and is a part of our investment in life so that we can keep that family focused on the Lord. Amen? What are we doing in our biological family if the Lord's presence, His teaching, speaking about Him, considering His Word, what are we doing in our biological family if that is completely absent from what the Lord has asked us to do? Family doesn't come first. The Lord comes first. The Lord is to be infused into our family. This is hard to hear. Jesus' words are hard to hear. He's come to cast fire. He's come to divide. He's eager to judge. He's a divider of families. Jesus, how can you say such things? Our response to that is actually listed right there, right in the middle of the text. A verse we skipped over. Our, our, our rejoinder to Jesus, how could you say such things, is to look again at what Luke 12, verse 50 says, where Jesus talks about his experience. His experience firsthand about what it means to be treated unjustly. His experience firsthand about what it means for his family to ridicule him or his friends to forsake him at his darkest hour. This is what the verse that we skipped over, verse 50. He says, but I have come, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Jesus says, until until this division is coming, until this fire is coming, the first thing that's coming is it's all happening to me, Jesus says. I have a baptism that I'm going to undergo. And it's going to involve family mocking me and ridiculing me. It's going to involve my dearest and closest disciples deserting me and my greatest hour of darkness and trial. It's going to incur me receiving wrongful arrest, wrongful trial, painful torture and torture and scourging and then ultimately death on the cross. Jesus says, I'm going to go through it all, all of it. All of the injustice. All of the pain. All of the division. I'm going to experience it first for you. I'm going to do all this for you. So yes, Jesus says, I can say I am eager to judge. I can say I'm the dividing line because I've been through all of it. I've experienced all of it. I know what it's like to be forsaken. And I know what it's like to desire God to make it right. Jesus cries out to the Father at his darkest hour, Father, Father, please take this cup from me. He wants it over. Jesus was scared and anxious about all that lie ahead of him. How distressed I am, he said, till all of this is accomplished. It should 
teach us, friends, that God is not some whimsical avenger. He is not eager to judge for no reason. He has fully known what it's like to be abandoned, to be forsaken, to be mocked, to be harmed, to be killed. So when we hear Jesus say, I've come to divide, and when we hear Jesus say, I'm eager to judge, know assuredly that it comes from a place of deep pain and remorse at what he's experienced and what the world has inflicted upon him. What we inflicted upon him by our sin and by our fallenness. Jesus is desperate for the world to wake up. He's desperate for us to wake up, to wake up and look at our sin, to wake up and compare our lives, our thoughts, our actions to the refining fire of God's word, to know that the day of judgment is coming when we will stand before Christ and have our lives reviewed He says in verse 54, then he also said to the multitudes, to the crowd, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, oh, a shower's coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say to yourself, there will be hot weather. And there it is. You hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Wake up. The people of the first century, they were very refined for their day. Very refined. They, uh, they started to establish weather patterns. And they would look to the west. And they knew being in, pa- in, the, in the land of Israel, they, when they looked to the west, they were looking out over the Mediterranean. And, and whenever there was clouds forming over the Mediterranean, they knew for sure that, that a rainstorm was coming. They would see the western clouds and go, okay, there's, there's a storm brewing over the sea. And then they would look to the south and, and they, would, they would see the, the, the wind coming up from the south and they would know assuredly, well, to the south is desert, it's the Dead Sea, it's, it's hot and dry, an awful place, really. Nothing grows there. And so they would know with the southern wind would come great heat. The Israelites could predict all all kinds of weather based on what was happening around them with near certainty, and yet they were failing miserably when it came to recognizing the fact that they would soon have their day in court. They would soon have their day in court before God. I think of our refined culture. Look at what our modern world is able to do. We're we're able to, uh, to map the human genome DNA, all of it, being mapped and poured over by scientists to know how to treat diseases and to combat all kinds of afflictions. We've mapped the human genome, the genetic information of of all mankind. We're building 3D printers in our society, printers that that will be used to, to print human organs, gallbladders maybe. We are going to print them with a printer. And doctors will use them to install them in human beings that they might have an organ that works again. 21st century scientists have also been able to theoretically predict, theoretically predict, the existence of what is called quarks. Quarks are widely believed to be the smallest particle in the universe, smaller than atoms. A particle which we have yet to see, scientists have yet to see it, but they know it exists based on the minuscule electric charge it emits within the hadrons and the nuclei of an atom. 
So to be clear, to be clear, scientists know that something exists even though they can't see it. That's kind of funny to me. Because I seem to remember them saying something a bit different than that when you substitute the word God for cork. Our modern society can do unbelievable things. We even know that quarks exist, something we cannot even see. And yet somehow, yet we somehow believe that the one who created quarks is just kidding when he says that fire will soon be cast upon the earth. If you believe that, you're playing with fire. Verse 57 to the, to the close of the chapter. Jesus says, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you've paid the very last might. Your day in court is coming. And Jesus reminds us that the wise person, the, the man or woman of wisdom, is the person who settles. Settles out of court. What does it mean to settle out of court? It means to make peace with God now, in this life, and not wait until the last day. For the non-Christian, it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means for you. If, you. if you're an unbeliever here today and you're wondering what does it mean to settle with God in this life, in the here and now, because I don't want to go before him on the last day, if you want to settle and bring your life into account in the here and now, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's an important, a critically important thing for you to do, you non-Christians. To have your sins forgiven now by grace through faith in Jesus Christ before it's too late, before the judge throws you into prison. And for the Christian, to settle out of court in the here and now means to renew your commitment to obedience and faithfulness to God so that when you face the judgment seat of Christ, your life's work will not be burned up. The bottom of your outline, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, with precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Folks, if we trust Jesus for our salvation in this life, we can rest assured, we can rest assured if we believe in Christ that we will not face the judgment that ends in eternal fire. We don't need to worry. If we trusted Jesus as our Savior, the fire 
that we will face will not be eternal fire. But mark these words well. We will face a fire. It'll be another kind of fire. We will all face the fire that burns away all the waste of our earthly life. All the worthlessness. All the feeble materials of it. The wood, the hay, the straw of our life. Do you suppose it's a good idea to wait for these things to be burned before the judge? Or is it a better decision for us to purge our lives of these things in the here and now? What do you need to confess to God? What do you need to repent of today? What are you doing that's not right? What are you doing that is evil or sinful? What attitudes are being harbored in your heart right now that are dark and that are wicked? Jesus' message is so very clear today. He says, cut it out. Purge it out. Burn those things now from your life. Don't wait for the judge to do it for you. Settle your life now. Settle with God now. Don't wait before the day of judgment. There will be an accounting. There will be a reckoning. We know that quarks exist, though we cannot see them. Well, you can see this. You can see these words. And the world has seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's come to earth. He's taught us. He's warned us. Scientists believe quarks that they cannot even see. How much more so ought you and I to believe that which, which we can see with our own eyes taught by the Son of God himself? You will face fire. Christian, it will not be eternal fire. Unbelievers, if you fail to receive Christ in this life, it will be eternal fire. So believe in Jesus now. But to the Christian, you will still face fire. It'll be at the judgment seat of Christ when the wood, the hay, and the straw of your life is burned and purged. Do you want to fight it? You want to fight that ticket? You know you're guilty? You know what you're doing now? That is wrong. You know what you're thinking now that is wrong. You know the attitudes that you have now that are wrong. Do you really, really want to fight it before the judge on the last day? Or would it be better by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, with the help of the people of God, would it be better to root that from you now, to purge it from you now, to be clean again? before God. Let's burn it now that the Lord will not have to burn it for us later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, these are hard words to hear. We don't think of your son Jesus in this way very often. We think of Jesus as 
the one of peace, of grace, of mercy. And God, we know he is that. We know he's brought that to us through his death and resurrection. But Lord, that is not all you are. You experienced unbelievable injustice, Lord. And you want, and you are eager for the day at which it will all be made right again. Eager for judgment. Eager for the fire that purges and cleanses. Lord, let us settle with you now. We do not want to go before you on the last day with a lot of wood and hay and straw that is unaccounted for. I pray, Lord, for myself and for our people. God, root it from us. Purge it from us. Let us burn this from us that we might be holy and clean before you on the last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.